0: This is Come and See by Father Ron Baird for May 1st, 2011. The Gospel is taken from the book of John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. It was evening, and the disciples had gathered in the same room where Jesus had celebrated the Last Supper with them. They had locked all the doors and closed up and bolted all the windows because they were afraid. Because they had executed Jesus. And if they found his followers, particularly his leaders of his followers, they would be executed too. You can imagine what the conversation was like. They're trying to figure out what in the world are we gonna do. I mean, how do we get out of town? I mean, how do we how do we how do we manage to not get caught? And and this is so disastrous from a week ago, because this is on Easter Sunday, you know, how how can we possibly have gotten to this point from a triumphal entry? And then Jesus appears with them and says, peace be with you. And then he says, he breathes on them, the Holy Spirit, give them the gift of, of the Holy Spirit. And in the Hebrew, the word is ruach, and that word can be wind or spirit or breath. Um, and, he, and he breathes the Holy Spirit. I don't know if you've ever noticed or not, but when um, I'm celebrating the communion, um, I lean over and, and do something. I do two things. One is I do this over the cup or the bread. you know what that is? It's a triangle, the sign of the Trinity. And the other thing I do is I breathe. Same kind of thing. Just because I don't make the bread into the body of Christ. Jesus does. Spirit does. The power of the spirit that makes all that happen. So he breathes on them and says, Whoever sins you forgive are forgiven, and whoever sins you retain are retained. Well, one of the disciples wasn't there. That was Thomas. Thomas, who knows where Thomas was? My guess is he was in hiding somewhere and just hadn't been able to get back to that place without being spotted. And so When he does finally arrive, the disciples say, Hey, we've seen the Lord. And Thomas says, Yeah, right. Now, I have to say, the guy's gotten a bad rap. I mean, for one week of his life, and the incidents of one week in his life, he's gotten the title Doubting Thomas. Can you imagine taking the worst week of your life and that ends up being your name for eternity? I mean, that'd be awful, wouldn't it? And besides that, is, is doubting really that unusual? I mean, if you'd gone to a funeral a couple of days before, and then you went to somebody's house for dinner, and they said, Hey, we saw the person we went to the funeral for, they were here earlier. I'm sure you would just buy right into that, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah, sure, right? makes sense. So Thomas says, I, You can almost see he's thinking, Either you guys have been hitting the sauce too much or you're pulling a joke on me and it's not funny or you're just crazy, I mean, but I don't buy this. He says, unless I put my fingers in the holes in his hands because I saw he was crucified, and unless I put my hand in the side because they punched a big hole in it, you won't get me to believe that one. I'm not falling for that. I've always wondered if the disciples played a lot of practical jokes on Thomas. Because it would certainly make sense why he was being very skeptical, wouldn't it? Well, it was another week then. And you can imagine, imagine the conversations that week that went on between Thomas and the... No, really, we did... Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was probably really getting tired of this. And then the next week in the evening again, doors were locked. The windows were all barricaded and bolted shut. And it says, Jesus appeared in the midst of them again. And again, he says, peace be with you. Now, peace be with you shalom, which is a traditional um, Israeli or Israelite greeting. So it's not that unusual, except that it's particularly apropos. Because, I mean, if you were in a room that was completely locked, and it was kind of a crowd, you know, crowded room because you got a bunch of people in there. And suddenly somebody peers right in front of you. Wouldn't you need peace too? Like, <laughs> peace be with you. Whoa! And he looks at Thomas and he says, "Do not doubt, but believe." Here, put your fingers in my hand. Put your hand in my side. Now, it doesn't say that Thomas needed to do that, by the way. It just says Thomas's response is, Lord, my God. That was quite a change, wasn't it? Because not only did he now believe that they had seen him, he now believed that Jesus was God. His whole perspective on the world had changed. It had become one of cynicism, fear, doubt, skepticism, to one of faith and belief. And trust in a living God. Now, that's a neat story, but how are we at that? Anybody here struggle with trust? I'll be honest. <laughs> Most people struggle with trust. It's hard, and it really is hard. How do we know who to trust, right? Anybody here know someone who's not untrustworthy? that is untrustworthy. I haven't slept a lot in the past few days. <laughs> someone, who is not, someone who is not trustworthy. And even more so, I mean, if you're closer to my age, if you're in the baby boomer generation, we were raised to be skeptical, partly because of the era that we grew up in. If you remember, John Kennedy was shot. Robert Kennedy was shot. Martin Luther King was shot. The Vietnam War wars going on. You know they were giving us reports, and the news was saying, but that can't possibly be true. I mean, and then you know Watergate. I mean, we we were taught to have a very healthy skepticism of any authority at all, and so we we grew up not believing it. Matter of fact, a lot of people, you know, say now I'm in my 50s. They said, did you have a hard time when you turned 50? I said, no, 50 wasn't bad. I said, it was 30 that really bugged me because I grew up in a generation that said, don't trust anyone over 30. And when I went over 30, I thought, well, I can't trust myself anymore. What am I going to do now? And that was really bad. It was, I had a hard time. I was in seminary too. so I mean, it was tough. But, and, and we see it every day, don't we? We're, we're very skeptical of people in authority. And you know, that's not true of the generation that came before us, by the way. Generation that came before us, you know, we had the things of where they would go to the doctor and you'd say, well, what did the doctor say? He told me I should take these pills. Did he say, what, for no, he just told me I needed him. You didn't ask, no. <laughs> you just taking stuff you didn't bother to ask, and you'd know. I mean, we'd be going, "Why?" <laughs> you know, We don't trust them. You know, make sure you know what you're doing. But they were taught to trust authority. If, if a person was a doctor, they knew what they were doing. You know, if a person was a police officer, they knew what they were doing. If a person was a, a government official, they knew what they were doing. And you trusted those people. We had exactly the opposite reaction. We didn't trust him at all. We ended up growing up in sort of a prove-it-to-me kind of mentality, much like Thomas. And it's created great problems in our society because we don't trust very easily, but when we do trust, we are very unrealistic what would you say if I told you you can actually trust everyone on the planet? There is no one on this planet you cannot trust. But I'm not. It's true. You can trust anyone. You can trust a serial murderer to kill people. It's very dependable. That's what they do. The problem with the way that we trust is not who can we trust, it's how do we trust them. We seem to think that trust is either complete or absent. you ever had anybody say, well, you're going to have to earn my trust? How do you do that? I mean, there's no way to earn trust. Trust is a decision, isn't it? That I believe that, this, that you mean what you say and say what you mean. Or I believe that this is what you do. You see, the real thing about trust isn't about who you can trust. You can trust anyone. It's about knowing them well enough to know what things you can trust them in and what things you want to depend upon them for. Because in truth, no one other than God is completely dependable. And actually, even the way we approach what trust in God is about, he's not very dependable. We'll get to that in a moment. But no one is trustworthy if we're defining trust, meaning you will always do what I want or you will always do what feels good to me or right to me. I mean, one of the things that always amazes me in marriage counseling, I have people come in, and, I mean, it's usually the marriage counseling is an interesting thing because generally it's the same kind of thing. You know, one or both parties come in. They have a list of things that their spouse does or doesn't do, and if I could somehow or other convince the other one, that the first person was right and they were wrong, then life would be good and they could live happily ever after. Which, of course, is impossible. (laughs) So, I'm always amazed when when they say, well, I just can't trust him anymore. Trust him in what? Well, you know, he doesn't listen. Well, then you ought to be able to trust that he's not going to listen. The question is, do you want to be married to somebody (laughs) Who doesn't listen? It's not really a question, can you trust them? Because you know who they are. I mean, I'm always astounded by people who say, for the past 15 years, this man has dropped his underwear in the bathroom and never once picked it up. It is driving me crazy. And I said, well, have you ever mentioned it to him? Yes. All the time. We've had horrendous fights about it. We go on and on about it. And and I said, then what happens? They said, well, while I'm yelling at him, he might pick it up. But the next thing I know, he's right back to saying the same thing. And I said, what do you do then? i tell him about it again. I go, how's that working? Well, it doesn't work. That's why we're here. He's not dependable. I said, that's not true. He's very dependable. What do you mean he's very dependable? I said, do you think he knows that you don't like for him to put the under- leave the underwear on the floor in the bathroom? Well, yeah then apparently that's not that important to him and so you can depend on him to leave the the underwear on the bathroom in on the bathroom floor it's not a problem it is a problem i said not for him what's a problem for me i'm the one that has to pick it up oh so you have a problem not him he's fine okay and so let's deal with your problem all right how are we going to get this fixed you know i say so what is it about the Underwear on the bathroom floor that bothers you. Well, I don't like having the bathroom all cluttered. So you like getting it cleaned up? Yeah, I said, well, I have a solution. They said, what's that? Is? I said, clean it up. Oh, I want him to do it. I said, that's tougher. Because <laughs> he doesn't care. He doesn't see it. He doesn't believe it. It's not an issue. Well, can't you make him realize how important it is? And I said, you've been doing it for 20 years and you haven't convinced him. I mean, how much? what makes you think that somehow or other I'm going to have some magic wand and then suddenly they're going to get it? It's not that they don't understand, it's that it is not important. And see, the real thing about marriage and, and trust in marriage is not so much about what can I trust my spouse. I mean, yes. The question is, is what can you trust them in? And if you try to trust them 100% in everything, You're delusional. You know, when people say, well, my spouse has never, ever once let me down. My first question is, how long have you been married? And my my second question is, do you two ever speak to one another? Um, Because it is impossible to live with a fallible human being and have them constantly meet your expectations and do what you want. So if by trust you mean that they will do that, then you had to have been let down. And in fact, real marriage, not the sort of I love you kind of marriage, but real marriage is based on the interaction and mutual dependence that comes out of us picking up for one another, helping out one another, carrying one another's burdens, and, and being there in spite of the fact that you're an idiot. And And I do it because... I've come to the realization that I, too, am an idiot. I just happen to like the way that I'm an idiot. And so we get along well. You know, I can almost always tell you, I tell Judy all the time, she says, well, I'm going to do this and this and this and this. And I said, you really expect me to believe you're going to go do that? <laughs> and she goes, well, no. <laughs> you're not going to do that. And she knows the things that I'm not going to do. Um, I don't know them, by the way. That's what's always interesting about it. Um, And she doesn't know them unless I point them out because that's the way we are. That's why marriage can be such a wonderful partnership is we truly can become one and work together cooperatively to get things done. Some people are good at some things. Some people are good at other things. I remember when Judy decided that she was going to paint the house. And I said, well, what do you want to paint it, blue? I don't want to paint it blue. <laughs> I said, "Well, what? She said, I have to go to the store. You have to go to the store to figure out what color you want to paint it." Yeah, I've got to look at all these little chips. I said, "How can you tell the difference in all this? They all look alike." You know? And she said, "No, they don't." So she brings me home one of these chart things, and she's got this little bit of thing about that big, and she said, "This is the color that I'm going to paint in the living room." And I'm thinking, that looks like mustard that somebody ate and, and, and brought. Why why in the world do you want to paint a living room that color? And she goes, oh, no, it'll look good on the walls. And I'm saying, are you crazy? You know, that ain't going to look good at all. That, that looks awful. It looks sort of like green and yellow and maybe a little red. And I mean, you've got to be kidding me. She goes, oh, trust me, it'll look good. I have to tell you, when we were first married, that was hard. And yet, when she did it, I went, "Wow, that that does that looks pretty good. I'm pretty impressed." (laughs) Yeah, you You get me. I go white, green, blue. That's pretty much it. Pretty standard. But she knows what she's doing with it, and I've learned that she knows what she's doing. And so, when she says, "I'm thinking about redoing this room. What do you think we ought to do in there?" And I go, "I have no idea. Just do something, and it'll (laughs) be fine." (laughs) <laughs> because I know she will do it well. That's why we work well together. A lot of people say, how in the world do you all work at the same place and get along? Well, because she's really good at some things. For instance, Judy is, is by and large, if she's not too swamped anyway, pretty good at detail things. Um, I'm horrible at them. I was the last person to prove the uh, slides, so I'm going uh, mention <laughs> <laughs> that should tell you something. Um, I'm not a detail person and, and and the people on the finance team will tell you I drive people crazy because you know, we talk about well, how much I got, yeah, around such and such, and around? I mean like what well, yeah, somewhere in that neighborhood. Well, a lot of people who like to do finances are very detailed. Or and they go, Well, exactly how much is it? And I go, Oh, like, what do you mean you don't know? I don't. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, does it matter? <laughs> well, yes, it matters. And that doesn't matter. As long as you're in the general range, it's good. And fortunately, otherwise, Robin Fields would have killed me by now. Um, they've learned that actually, the ballparking isn't all that bad. I don't. I really am doing it fairly well, but but not the way she would have done it. On the other hand, they come in with these. Can't think of the name of them. I have a mental block about this. What is it? Assets and balance sheet. That's what they call it. I don't know why they call it a balance sheet because I look at it and feel very unbalanced. But um, (laughs) and they come up with all these things and they're telling me all this stuff and I'm going, that sounds really smart. They go, look good, and I go, is it good? (laughs) And Alan usually goes, yeah, that's actually pretty good. And I go, sounds great. Look, I say I don't have a clue what all that means, but if you tell me it's good, I'm okay. Because I mean, I read it, but it makes no sense to me whatsoever. Get Alan to explain libor to you sometime. <laughs> he's taught it to me what five times now or something, and I still have no clue what it is he's talking about. Because there are people who are good at that, and there are people who aren't good at that. And when we begin to realize that that's what trust is ultimately all about. It changes our perspective on how we approach people and how we believe in them. We don't believe in them because, oh, they're a good person and I can trust them. We believe in them because we've gotten to know them. We know the things that they are trustworthy in, and we know the things that that that's not going to happen, and we don't depend on them for it because it won't happen. The most miserable place in life is to expect things from people who are not going to give it to you. You will live your life feeling let down, disappointed, disillusioned, wondering why it is that you can't find somebody who would be, you know, a decent friend or a decent spouse or a decent whatever, boss. And the real problem is that we don't bother to get to know them. Same thing goes with God. You know, all too often, we want God to be sort of the, Easter Bunny, the Tooth Fairy, and Santa Claus, and the Pillsbury Doughboy all rolled up into one. You know, so that if you know, we make a list, he may check it twice, but we're still going to get the stuff. And then when we don't get what we wanted or what we thought was important, we are so disappointed. Why wouldn't God help me? When we're praying so hard for something and so earnestly, and we really do need it, and, and it doesn't happen, then why would God disappoint me? Why would God let these bad things happen? It's not just us either. We look at things. I mean, do you know how many people won't come into church because if God existed, there wouldn't be tornadoes that kill that many people? And I keep thinking, well, no, God exists. He's just not the God you want. Which is pretty normal in Exodus. He even told Moses that, didn't he? When Moses said, well, what's your name? He said, I am who I am. I mean, do we really want a God who is a, sort of a, a, an android or some figurehead that, that basically fulfills our expectations? Do we really want to create God in our image? Or do you really want a powerful God who created the world and is bringing it not to what we think it ought to be, but to what He wants it to be? And do you want to be a part of it? Because the one thing about God, God is steadfast. He is always dependable. But He's not always dependable if you're going to define trust as being that you can always depend on Him to do what you want. That wouldn't be much of a God. Rather, He's dependable if you are willing to reverse that position and say, Lord, I'm going to do what you want. That's what happened to Thomas that day in that room. Thomas went in thinking, people don't get raised from the dead, didn't happen, don't believe it, not buying it. And he ended the day knowing that he had met God. And the change came in the way Thomas saw the world. Prior to that, he saw the world from his own perspective and the way things were supposed to be. But when he saw the risen Christ, he knew that the world isn't and never was what he thought it was supposed to be. Because isn't it interesting that our God, our crucified and risen God, when he appears doesn't appear with shining armor and all his wounds healed, you know, his hair neatly uh, shampooed and combed and styled and you know just, you know, smelling like roses and I mean he, I mean he appears with holes in his hands and his side. He bears the wounds, and yet he's more powerful than they are. He is who he is. And so, as we begin to live into the season of Easter, which goes on for 50 days, that's what an Easter life really looks like. It's a life of a different view of the world, of realizing that there is sin, and brokenness in the world. And it isn't just in people. The whole of creation has fallen and bad things happen, and that is the norm. And the way we know who we can trust is by we get to know them. We get to know the world. We start paying attention to it. Have you ever noticed what animals do when a tornado is coming? Isn't that interesting that in natural disasters, Animals, know and they're fleeing before the thing. Everybody's going, what in the world's going on? Birds are flying fast, you know. Animals. what you know? What's happening? Get attention. They are in a relationship with not only one another, but with their world. They can see the signs because they know them, and so they flee. The real difference between can I trust or can I not trust is in that one simple step. Am I willing to look and get to know? Because then I know what things I can trust and what things I can't in each individual circumstance. Is it harder? Sure. Welcome to the world. It's the way it is. But it also is liberating. Because now we know that if we know who we can trust in what things, and we know that what things we can trust God in ultimately depends upon our realizing that He is Lord, He is God, He is in charge. And we also know that even if you killed me, you couldn't stop me from fulfilling His will because He'll raise me from the dead. And nothing else will ever matter. Whether you take away all of my money, all of my possessions, all my health, even all my life, he will restore it to me. Anything that can be done to me is temporary, and I need not fear. And we saw that in Thomas and the rest of the disciples, didn't we? They went from a people who were hiding in a room that was shut and blocked to a bunch of people who went out in the middle of the street and started telling everybody they could meet. I mean, one of the wonderful stories we have in Acts is that they, they you know, or in Peter today, is he comes out and he's telling them all this stuff about what's going on. In Acts, we have the same thing. They're out telling people, you know, this man that you crucified, that you killed, you thought that you had won, but you didn't that's a lot of change from somebody who is hiding. What are you hiding from? What are you afraid of? What is it that you're afraid that if you really spoke the truth would be the disaster of your life? And then ask yourself, what world do I really want to see? The one I'm making up and trying to work around? or the one that the Father in heaven sees with his own eyes. And when you make that choice, you are choosing between life and death, between joy and sorrow, between trust and skepticism, between doubt and belief. And the choice is up to us. And so I want to challenge you, when you go out into the world this week, ask yourself, how do I see the world? How do I see the people in the world? You know, I, I could do that too, by the way. I could look at each one of you and say, because I know most of you fairly well, and I could say, well, that person ought to do this, that, or the other more. And what's the matter with them? They're off doing this, and they really shouldn't be doing that kind of stuff. And, and, you, know, and you know, why don't they listen to me bet more when I'm preaching? And there are preachers who do that kind of thing. I mean, they love to do it. The problem with it is, is that I don't see you that way. I mean, I have people who tell me all kinds of things about their lives. It didn't change how I see you because you know how I see you? You're a child of the most high, omnipotent God. You are beloved by him. every bit as much as I am. How can I really dislike you? if I realize how much my Lord loves you. Are you perfect? Nay, <laughs> But in reality, neither am I. So, And so we journey together, and we live with one another, and we struggle sometimes, and we work hard to truly see one another, not through the world's eyes, through skepticism, But through the Father's eyes, trust. Do we trust people with things they shouldn't be trusted with? Hopefully not. We're setting them up to fail and us up to fail. But that doesn't mean that we don't trust them with other things that they're good at. When you can do that, your life changes. You don't have to say, I have no right to judge someone. That's law, by the way. You don't need to judge someone. It's unnecessary because they're family and they're loved. They're loved by God and therefore they're loved by me, for you. What would your life be like if you went into the world this week and approached your boss, your clients, your kids, your spouse um, in those ways? Seeing them... Not through the eyes that Thomas saw at the beginning of the week, but through the kind of eyes that he saw eight days later. Would they be perfect? No. But suddenly the world becomes a glorious place filled with opportunity and hope and meaning and purpose. And it makes it worth living. Which will you choose? Life or death? Death. Trust or doubt. It's really just a choice. Amen. You have been listening to Come and See by Father Ron Baird. Come and See is a production of St. Andrew's Church in Lewis Center, Ohio. St. Andrew's is also available online at www.standrewspolaris.org. Please join us again when we invite you to Come and See.